Hi, and welcome to Song Divers, an interview podcast about singer-songwriters. We like to go deep in conversation with our favorite musicians in search of honest answers. What are the ingredients of a great song? What makes a songwriter tick? Can a musician make a living these days? Is Jason Isbell overrated? What? My name is Stefan. And this is Ed. And on this episode, we go backstage with some of the most objectively cool and well-dressed dudes touring today. First, as usual, we want to keep you submerged in the stuff that matters. If you're looking to start the year off with a great run of shows, look no further than some of our previous guests. The Grammy-nominated Andrew Duhon has 2020 already booked through March. You will absolutely regret missing him if he comes within driving distance of your hometown. That's not a threat, but go see him. You can also kick off the year with the annual 30A Songwriters Fest in January, where you can see some acts we love and hope to be interviewing soon. I'm talking Aaron Lee Tazjian, The Secret Sisters, Tanya Tucker, Robin Hitchcock, Kate Vargas, John Paul White, and of course, John Prine. The list goes on. 30A and Song Diver alum Jesse Terry is on tour, making his way through our area January 4th, sharing the stage with our very own Edward Till at Hideaway Cafe in St. Petersburg. And some of our other favorites are on tour in early 2020, including Robert Cray, Chris Christofferson, and the incredible Lyle Lovett. If you are in our hometown, look for those acts all at the Billheimer Capitol Theater. The Songdivers team made a trip to the Pacific Northwest earlier this year to see our friends at Emerald City Guitars in Seattle and Benson Amps in Portland. We also ran into one of the coolest makers on Etsy, Sarah from Feedback Straps. Sarah is every bit as cool and unique as the handmade and eco-friendly straps her company makes. And if you want to make sure your instrument or camera is outfitted with the same caliber of style, make a visit to songdivers.com slash feedback to get strapping. Hey everybody, Vintage Trouble here, Ty and Nale and Richard and Rick. No way can I be the only one listening to the sounds outside our windows today. Voices they scream, alarms they are whistling, and the fire is spiraling down the sky like rain. And hear me when I say I, I refuse to stand by, I refuse to stand by blind eye, clutching my fears and covering my ears like I don't hear the crashing of Apart and made in LA, the guys that make up the band Vintage Trouble are rock and roll incarnate. I was first introduced to these guys when they toured through a really cool and diverse jazz festival we have here in the Tampa Clearwater area, which I realize is confusing considering they're an act with monster soul and blues swagger, and there's not really any jazz players in the group. Vocalist Ty Taylor is the poster child for the art of being a frontman. He's got a killer voice, he can jump about seven feet in the air, and he makes it almost impossible not to get up and groove when they take the stage. And the band is stacked, as evidenced by the unplugged performance the whole group knocked out for us, and that you'll get to hear on the back half of this episode. I'd come across Vintage Trouble before, backstage at the Rock and Roll Marathon series in Washington, D.C. a couple years ago. The guys were polite, they were fun, and they were genuinely excited to be musicians. Something you don't really see as much in bands of this stature and as famous as these guys are. 
From the fashion ads that they appear in to their newest music, Vintage Trouble is everything rock and roll is supposed to be, plus everything it's missing. The guys were in a bit of a rush to get the sound check during our episode, but they gave us a little over an hour to hang and record with them backstage. We hope, actually, we know, you will enjoy their interviewing performances. It's some of the coolest, best-sounding stuff we've captured yet. Do you guys want to each go ahead and just give us your name in the mic? It's Nolly Colt. I play guitar. Richard Danielson. Drums. Hey, Ty. Taylor. Uh, Rick Barrio-Dill. Play bass guitar. Um, we are joined by Tony Dolly these days on vocals. It's nice to meet you guys. Hey. Thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this for us, guys. So I, I'm going to go ahead and confess. I'm, I'm a huge fan. Um, so you guys played recently, I think within the last two years. Um, I met you guys for a split second. I work for Iron Man in Rock and Roll Marathon Series. Oh, nice. I met you guys very briefly backstage. You guys were super cool, super, super polite. And you guys put on a hell of a show at Rock and Roll DC a couple years ago. Mm. So, A, thank you for doing that. Thank and then, you. B, thanks for being so cool. Oh, you caught us on a good day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what a cool idea to have a rock and roll marathon. I loved that. I thought it was really very clever. Heck yeah, man. Yeah. And people were huge fans of yours. I had seen you. So, we're, we're sitting here right now in Clearwater in um, the Mar- uh, excuse me, Capitol Theater. And you guys played a couple years ago at the Clearwater Jazz Fest right here, by the water, right? right? Literally yeah. right behind where we're, we're sitting right now. Less than a mile from here. That yeah. was my introduction to you guys prior, and you guys put on a fantastic show there too. And, and, and a unique thing because it's a jazz fest; it's generally a little more low key, and you guys just tore it up. And oh, people nice. just there's a lot of people on towels laid out, and they couldn't help it; they got up and they're just grooving, <laughs> which it. was awesome. So generally, we have a little more time. We're going to go a little quick with you guys. We want to make sure you get to sound check. Just briefly, tell us where you guys are from. Now let's start with you. Uh, well, I'm from Sweden originally, Malmo, Sweden, and uh, I decided to buy a one-way ticket to Los Angeles, and so the band is from Los Angeles. You mm-hmm. know, we're, we're all met in Los Angeles. It's kind of a melting pot from all kind of nationality over there, which is really cool, and they, you know, a lot of great musicians, so I wanted to go there as fast as I could. <laughs> Very cool. Mm. I was the one-way ticket to Los Angeles, as in I was the native, or am the native. I was uh, born in L.A. and still live in L.A. It's a cheaper and, uh, ticket. Yeah, cheaper and I love it. I love L.A., although I do love being out on this other coast. It's kind of cool. Um, but I certainly love my Los Angeles. Yeah, um, this is Ty. I'm originally from Montclair, New Jersey, um, and then I've been in L.A. for about 25 years. And this is Rick, and uh, I also metaphorically bought a one-way ticket, but uh, I, I'm from here. I'm from Tampa and grew up in South Florida, and um, that's my mom right there, right behind. What's up, Mamacita? Yeah, Mama! Um, so this is, kind of, this is a hometown show, and this is always fun to come back here, but I, uh, when I went to L.A., it was kind of like the same as Nolly. I went, I went one way, um, and it was really just the pursuit of music and the pursuit of sort of the unlimited ceiling, and um, that's what I love about that city. It's Florida's home, but but LA is is my you know new home 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 you know because it's, it's it's unlike any other place in the world and I just I love Los Angeles for its colors and its its diversity and its representation of planet Earth more than anywhere else I've ever seen. I don't know where the hell I was when they were handing out all these one way tickets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rick, I'm assuming you got recruited to sing a high harmony somewhere in LA. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> I, I I sing all the high stuff. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you guys talked about heading out there. So part of this podcast, um, we're focused on the pursuit of being a song. How do you sustain it? How do you do it for a living, right? And then, and then the actual art. Like, so you guys all mentioned moving to Los Angeles. Were you guys going out there with an invite, or you're going out to pursue music? And I'm sure it varies for you guys. And did you already have an artistic voice, or was that something you guys were seeking to find out there? I'll start. I went out there because I, I was I got a record deal. 
So I, I had been pursuing it not really that long. I was in New York and I was doing some shows and stuff and I, I started writing, writing these songs and I figured it was easier to get a project together. It seemed better to me at the time as if it was a band. And so I said it was this band and the only other musicians I knew at the time that could play this music were in Los Angeles. So I sent out a demo, got offered record deals right away, didn't have the band together yet. So then I had to go to LA, rehearse with the band, showcase to the labels in Los Angeles, and that was it. I just stayed there. And that, was, that wasn't this act? No, that was in 1995. What was that band called? It was called Dakota Moon. It was on Electro Records. Okay, okay, cool. What about the rest of you fellas? Yeah, and I actually... I remember I was in Los Angeles and I ran into Ty then when he moved because I was playing in a band called The Best of Simple. It was a singer called Chris Pierce. And we, we kind of, I guess in a way we did similar music to this, rhythm and blues, kind of soul music. And we were playing at a little uh, a club, an Irish club called Molly Malone's in Los Angeles. And mm-hmm. I, that's how I met Ty. They would come down and check out our band now and then, you know. So, so I ran into him and, and started um, yeah, we worked a little bit, not so much in the beginning. It was more of just hanging out. And uh, but as far as music, yeah, I mean, I I wanted to be in LA because it felt like people were really hungry, you know, wanted to. Because my hometown, Sweden, is actually very musical. There's lots of musicians, mm-hmm. but to, you know, to put a band together and kind of go through like the process it takes a long time you know and i wanted to just be around people that really really wanted it and uh i got lucky pretty early on i moved to los angeles 91 so i've been there a long time mm-hmm. um uh, i st- went to a music school or sorry we have a little background music <laughs> no it's all good talking, but it's you know that's why when we swedish people <laughs> yeah. talk that's how it sounds like, <laughs> yeah it just comes in from nowhere yeah <laughs> But yeah, so I, 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 you know, I just wanted to be around it, and uh, and I wanted to be part of songwriting. I've never been a great lyricist, or, or so for me, it was a lot of like working with uh, singers and working, you know, trying to uh, with music. And so I'd be very guitar oriented. Of course, I'm a guitar player. So, but that's so that's what my start in Los Angeles. Cool. What about the rhythm section, you know. What these guys are saying, it was such a, so I say it's kind of like the end of a golden era of Los Angeles um, when these guys had moved out there. Uh, it was really the music capital of the world, and that's what you had to do if you were a musician in the world, is you kind of had to move to Los Angeles. There were other great cities, but really Los Angeles was, you know, at the height of all that, and it was such a beautiful thing to witness because what I love so much about L.A. is guys like this got up off their couches in their towns and got up into the big city and became you know, bigger fish in bigger ponds, you know? And that's a beautiful thing about L.A. It's the city of dreams, you know? Um, so I was there just kind of witnessing it all and kind of just being a part of it, and there was such an influx of musicians that it was just such a great era to be a part of. Now, there's some great more music cities in the world. Now you got Nashville, you got Austin, Texas, you got New Orleans. You know, these cities have always been around, and they've really grown. So as a musician today, you could move to any of those cities. Um, but back in the day, L.A. was king and that's why we probably all ended up there. Uh-huh. Rick, I'm pretty sure I heard him say Tampa in there, too. Uh, I don't know. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, you know, I, this was kind of a fertile ground for, for me. Believe it or not, like from MDing bands, I got to sort of be band leaders and put together bands here. I got played in 
gospel acts, um, you know, Southern Baptist kind of gospel acts, because that was where the baddest players were. I just wanted to be around oh, yeah. the baddest drummers and the baddest singers and stuff like that. And then, um, you know, had a lot of gigs and, and was doing a lot of work in, in a studio, a couple of studios that I ran here and um, doing a lot of dirty South hip hop. And then also spin off doing a lot of death metal, believe it or not, you know, as far as working on that type of stuff. <laughs> it's a big scene here. Yeah, yeah, no, death metal. Yeah, I remember because even in Brandon obituary, I remember coming home from school and, see, you know, seeing all this stuff. So. Um, there was there was like that like there was a there was a an access there was a chariot to heaven, but it was off in the distance you know and uh, for me and I just knew that I I just loved soul music I loved I loved I loved badass rhythms and badass drummers and and so it drew me out to L A but I was actually I had a band here that was doing a showcase here and ironically. Oh, or maybe not. I mean, I guess it is. Uh, 9-11 it was the day that we were actually doing our showcase for Interscope. And um, it was just, uh, you know, it set everything back several years. But never did I not want to be in Los Angeles because, because at the very least, well, you could smell the kitchen on the other side of the door. You right. Know? That's where the epicenter was. Yeah. And I could smell the food. I was like, I'm going to figure out a way to open that door. So. In, in the interest of time, I'm, I'm, Ty, I'm going to direct this next question at you and have you maybe give us a little timeline of the band. So you guys were all doing different stuff. Maybe talk to us a little bit, A, how you guys met and got together. And then I'm also interested in, Ty, you've done a bunch of other really public music things in terms of you were on the show where NXS was looking for a lead singer, which was super awesome. Um, Brian, one of the guys doing engineering for us right now, Brian Merrill back there, that was his first intro to you, and he's been in love with you guys since. Did you vote for me? <laughs> he's giving a thumbs up. I voted for him. Absolutely. Um, you, you're the voice of one of the characters on vinyl, which is super cool, HBO series vinyl, very, very awesome. Um, and then you, you sang on one of Booker T's records. Um, tell us a little bit about that, that musical journey. Um, and then use that to kind of tell us when the band comes into play and, and how that's flitted in and out of your guys' kind of yeah. existence. Well, I started out as a kid, actually. Um, the first thing I did was a Pampers commercial when I was 14 months old. I was the first black Pampers baby. I thought I recognized <laughs> you. Black you recognize that ass. Black Pamper. Black Pamper. And then from there, I, you know, I started doing a lot of performing in New York City. And then, like most singers... You know, you always do other things besides being in a band because a band, you know, is a collective. And, like, where a lot of other people get to practice their instruments solo-wise, you're usually just doing different things that will allow you to, to make music. And so for me, you know, I grew up doing theater. Um, I did my first Broadway show in New York when I was eight years old. And I just did that until I went to college. And then right after um, college, I started doing bands. And then I, I just realized that I really like being in the studio, um, surprisingly enough, because people see me on stage all the time acting crazy and jumping around and swinging and, and loving live music, I actually prefer to be in the studio than, than on stage as far as music is concerned. So then I started doing voiceovers. And then so through that, people started knowing me, my voice, more than my face. And then I started um, being known. Um, a lot of people would call me to do things. And that's how I got to do the HBO thing um, uh, with, with Lester. And then it's, it's just been such a nice ride because... Um, you know, I, I studied a lot. I studied a lot of voice, and I studied a lot of different techniques, and so it's allowed me to do a lot of different things now. Rockstar in Excess was beautiful because um, I wasn't really that big of an NXS fan ahead of time, but I did know the power of television, and so it, it was really great to be part of that show. I'm still good friends with a lot of people on that show. Um, and as a matter of fact, when I left that show, I think I did a sh some show in L.A. that I was playing at the Roxy, 
And I was playing a show, and my friend Marty Casey, who almost won Rockstar in Excess, was there with his manager, who at the time was Doc McGee. Doc McGee tried to manage my old band, Dakota Moon. So then that was my reconnection with Doc McGee was through Marty Casey, who was on Rockstar with me. Networking. Yeah, networking. Well, it was just odd. And then so all of a sudden, you know, I'm talking to Doc again. And then the band gets um, together. Within the first year, the band is playing around Los Angeles. And because we were already grown men, grown-ass men, um, we decided that we weren't going to do any pay or playing, and we weren't going to listen to promoters that say you could play only once a month. What our band decided to do was we were going to play different pockets of town. So we played four nights a week, original music, all over L.A. Um, and then it ended up being a really great thing for us because that made Doc perk up again when he found out about it. And then he came to this band that was called Vintage Trouble. He didn't know it was me. And then all of a sudden, it's a new reconnection. But that was the beginning of a time for us where we realized um, there's always going to be a business. There's always going to be cor the corporate way of doing things. And sometimes you have to step outside of, of, of the norm in order to get some attention. And that's what we did. We just were like cocky about it. We said that we um, didn't want to play at places that would give us a percentage of the door. We told places we wanted to play there. Let us know what your bar is. Your bar will heighten by us being there. That's what we want our salary to be. And so we just started playing places. And, and it, it actually worked out for us. I mean, as we were at home. And I remember we were playing at this place, place called the Edison Downtown. It was an event they had. And they were like, we can give you $2,000 for this event. We are like, for, in one night? Yeah. For being at home? <laughs> you know, we just didn't even get it. You know, I'm not even sure we're making $2,000 tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so it was just a really, really nice methodology for us to just say, fuck it. And let's just um, do what we think we need to do at, at whatever time we need to do it. And in that, we were recording the Bomb Shelter sessions. And we were only doing that to record some demos to sell at our shows. And we'd only been together for three weeks. We did our show. Within that three weeks, we recorded our album in three days. And we started selling it. We sold so many records. Uh, that's another thing Doc McGee did. We said, let's take us to England. He took the band to England. Um, it was a dream of ours because while we were recording the Bomb Shelter sessions, we watched that uh, Stax Vault tour documentary where they took all of their artists to the United Kingdom and brought rhythm and blues there. So we said, perfect, let's go. So we went there. And we played the Jules Holland show. We played the Jules Holland show. We left the parking lot of the Jules Holland show. And we were like the number five tweeted thing in the world at that time. It was awesome, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and like literally, it was one of those things where you say to yourself, do you mean like the number five music tweeted thing? They're like, no. You're right in between, you know, some guy named Obama that's going to come around in a second. <laughs> and and tsunami. Yeah, and tsunami. Rock and so, Philippines. So it was just crazy that that happened to us because we had been producing, we were on CD Baby at the time. We broke their site like they called Nolly and they were saying like who what's happening with you guys you guys went up like 5,000% today and it was the, the most beautiful time because we were going to the post office with sacks of, of CDs that we hand wrote addresses on that we had to send out the next day literally every day we were going to the post office with sacks of CDs and um if people are listening to this and you know what CDs are, they were this thing that people used to listen to music <laughs> right. on. Yes. We sell them as coasters yeah. now. Yeah, and yeah. so that, that, to tell, I know we were rushing through time, so that's the story of Vintage Trouble and how music got me to Vintage Trouble and all that kind of stuff. And the best part about Vintage Trouble lately is that um, we did this Chapter 2 collection and we decided to lean into some record making, you know, because we just played live a lot and we wanted to do something that felt um, the mixed contemporary with Vintage. And... It's been really interesting being on tour this time because there are some people that only know us from Chapter 2. 
And that's odd for us because we spend eight years being who we know Vintage Trouble is. And we decided to l- add a little sauce. It brings in some new people, but it's just weird that those new people are at our shows and, you know, we'll play one of these new songs and they'll go crazy, but they don't know Nancy Lee and Blue 79. <laughs> that is crazy to any troublemaker to me. Any troublemaker that doesn't know Nancy Lee, Nancy Lee and Blue's Hand Me Down and Not All Right By Me, it's odd that they are a troublemaker. So the best part about this new stage is that you realize um, in life, when you do new things, um, you get new things. And that's been really beautiful. That was a bold, uh, like it says it right in the title, chapter two. Yeah. It's like a bold, like, we're going to reboot, we're going to reset. Right. So talk right. a little bit about that. Like, what, what made you guys decide Well, we to didn't, like I said, we just really wanted to, there was so much music we were being inspired by. And as we started finding that some of our music heroes were younger than us, then we had to be inspired by what they were doing. It's right. that simple. I think it's kind of cool, too. Or it's not that simple. Well, no, no, no. Well, <laughs> right, right. That's it. That's the basics. Yeah. It is, it's that simple, the philosophy of it all. The philosophy of it all. But it also is, uh, with, four, with four different people in a band, and with different ideologies and stuff, you can look at it one of two ways. It's either, it's either a bunch of problems or it's, or it's a bunch of opportunities. You know? And I think for us, we purposely, we sat out in 2016. We had been doing things a certain way and had sort of had a collective set of problems or an individual set of problems with things, how, the, how, was, how they were going along. And if you're looking at problems as nothing but opportunities, then it's, it really is, it's, it's awesome. Every, everything that comes along is like this great, great chance to, what can I learn about myself? What can I learn about the industry? Where can I learn about my bandmate? You know, um, and, and I think that, that was what was also another challenge, you know, it is kind of sort of turning the page and looking at things, you know, from a whole different viewpoint. Hey guys, this is Steph here, and I need to get something off my chest. The truth is, I have guitar playing insecurities, pretty big ones. I mean, I can hold my own, but when I hear guys like Ed pick up a guitar, I realize quickly just how narrow my scope of knowledge truly is. My best friend, writing partner, and all-around guitar stud, Colin Ryan, confessed to me recently that he's been subscribing to Truefire to expand his musical vocabulary. I told Ed about it, and he was curious too, so we made a visit to Truefire's site and were blown away by how diverse and comprehensive Truefire's courses are. We were also really impressed by their educators too. Well-known musicians, Grammy winners, and touring performers. A few really cool ones that stood out to me were Luther Dickinson of the North Mississippi All-Stars, Dweezil Zappa, Sonny Landreth, and our guest, Ellis Paul. Any lingering reluctance to sign up was quickly extinguished when I learned that over a million guitar players from around the world are already using Truefire. I downloaded the app, and I became one of them. So if you want to join us at any skill level, head over to songdivers.com Truefire to get started on our favorite musical education platform. We're going to start with a song from Bomb Shelter Sessions. Um, the funny part about this song is nothing. <laughs> no, no. What's really great about this song to us is that it's the first song we ever played together. Um, the band got together, and Ollie and I were doing demos in Venice Beach. Um, we approached Rick and, and Richard, and we were like, let's play this song, blada, blada, blada. Now, it's a high-energy song. Um, we told everybody we were going to start on the downbeat. Richard started with this crazy drum fill before the downbeat started. And at that point, we knew that it was going to be a rock'em sock'em kind of ride. Um, people ask where a blues hand-me-down title comes from. 
uh, I was in the airport with our with my fr- a dear friend of all of ours named Debbie Holiday. And we were talking about our fathers and what kind of craziness our dads got into. It was a different day. You got away with a lot of SHIT back then. And hashtag SHIT. And um, I told, she was telling me her dad was trouble. And I said, my dad was vintage trouble. And literally the next day I got back home and we were writing this song. And then so there's a bridge of the song. I chose to write the lyric. I come from vintage trouble. Look at it from the one you found. Now, it was also a time when, like, in hip-hop, it was so big that you always said, like, what your name was in your song. So it felt like I was saying, even though I wasn't saying it, it felt like I was saying, I come from Vintage Trouble, look at it from the one you found, like, as if it was a band name. We hadn't had a band name yet, so we were like, why not that? (laughs) Super cool. So that's how it happened. This song is called Blues Hand Me Down. Yeah, baby. Woo! Yeah, right, sure. Taking the long way, we fought soon to come out. We'll 
hey, this is still Vintage Trouble. <laughs> so then um, we, we left the bomb shelter sessions and came above ground to an unknown place called One Hopeful Road. On this road is where we found this next song, Doing What You're Doing. I don't know how adult this podcast is, but we were doing mushrooms when we wrote this song. Oh, it's adult. It's adult. And, um, and it was funny, when your mind is, is open beyond its, its regular reach, you start to find little elements of life that you might not have thought about. And this one, um, Doing What You're Doing, it came because... Uh, there was an altercation on the beach and the cop was saying to the people, all right, everybody, get back to doing what you were doing. And I was just thinking about how cool that was of a statement, you know what I mean? Because we all know it's, it's a long work week, right? And you get to the end of the week and when you're walking home, you're like, oh my God, there's an exhale. And you're like, all right, let me get back to the real me or something. And then, you know, I remember talking to this one woman on the beach when I was tripping and I was like, listen, I know I might be high, but I'm trying to figure out, you know, if this makes any sense, you know, you know, about getting back to doing what you're doing. And she was like, yes, it does. Because I, at the end of the day, when I'm walking home and I light my first cigarette and I'm walking, I take that exhale. I'm like, yes, doing what you're doing. I was like, okay, so it's not just me. <laughs> like validation. Yeah, validation. And then not only that, I mean, with so many stresses that we have in our lives, it's, it's always nice to be able to feel like you line back up with the flow. Um, the song is called Doing What You're Doing. You see what I mean? 
Everyone, we have the we have this rhythm. So um, hi, we're still vintage trouble. This song, the song we're gonna do now is um, it's one of the songs from our chapter two collection of EPs, and um. What we really like about this tune is that it happened to land in a time that I think everyone needed to understand the concept that we were all the same. And yes, we know that we have different histories, um, but that's a given already. And I think the sooner that we come to a point of realizing that our similarities outweigh our differences, um, there will be less need for songs like this one. And even though I would miss it, I would really rather there not be a need for a song like this. <laughs> this song is called Everyone is Everyone. Everyone is everyone. Everyone is everyone. I climbed over mountains and it crossed over bridges, swam oceans and rivers and walls I broke through. I severed the chain and the suffered of the pain and recalled every name of the stain. And look, I educated my mind and I straightened my spine to redefine what was written in our history books. Reach out to a stranger, hold away, rivers of the danger, handmade by man. Everyone is everyone. Everyone. 
Guys, I know we got to get you off to sound check. We don't make you late. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Yeah, thank you. So Next much. time you come yeah, back through town, let's do part two. Yeah, <laughs> we, got, we have so many more questions for you guys. We'll do I chapter got three. One chapter last quick three. one for you. I think is more of a yes or no one. One of the coolest things I've seen you guys do, in addition to all of your music, um, you guys have been cool since I've seen you. Like just emanating cool. Uh, you guys did a John Varvatos campaign, which was yeah. super awesome. My question is, did you guys dress that awesome before the campaign? And then do you have to keep dressing awesome if afterwards? If you knew you into trouble before the campaign, that totally. answers that question. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have to ask that question. He wouldn't have asked us to do it. Cool. Yeah, let me put these schlocks in my clothes. And say, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, he was great. About it, was me really, then. it was yeah. really cool to do. He's, uh, he's, he's got a good energy when it comes to the whole like rock and roll kind of touch to it. And... He's a dear friend of ours. He's, it's really fun to do. Well, he took over the old CBGBs, and yeah. yeah. No, we knew you guys were cool. It's a very specific, different cool, you know? <laughs> uh, if you guys haven't seen that, it's some of the coolest stuff. Anyway, guys, he we love you. He's the first you. person that took us out of suits. Really? Yeah. Yeah. True. Oh. Yeah. Look, okay. yeah, just look up Knock Me Out video on Vintage uh, Trouble Official Knock Me Out video on YouTube. It's, got, <laughs> it's even got John in it. We'll, we'll make sure we kick everybody all over the sites. Guys, thanks so much for doing it. We love the stuff. Bye We're looking forward Merry to the Christmas. show. Thank Fantastic. you. Yeah. Yeah. See you guys. <laughs> Flipping my sign to be back in five. Walking away to come back alive. I miss the easiness in me. And I'm finding it hard to barely breathe I long to strum a simple song That tracks me back to days of gone When 
time When the hands wind down and sit still Where all I knew can unfold and recline Washed over my mind There will, I know there will be You've been listening to Song Divers. Thank you for supporting us and our sponsors and all the great independent music makers out there trying to make their way in the music business these days. Songs we heard in this episode were The Battle's End from Chapter 2, EP 1, and Everyone is Everyone from Chapter 2, EP 2. We also heard Blues Hand Me Down from the Bomb Shelter Sessions and Doing What You Were Doing and Soul Serenity, both from the album One Hopeful Road. It's not goodbye. It's just see you next time, because we're going to work hard to get more time with this powerhouse of a band the next time they'll have us back out. If you knew these guys ahead of time and you've seen them live, then you know. If you haven't, then I implore you to buy tickets to the next show they play near you. Get a good night's sleep ahead of time and get ready to move. You can find out when at VintageTrouble.com. And then prep your ears by hearing their full catalog on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else you go to buy and stream your music. They are at Vintage Trouble on Instagram and Facebook, and their unplugged tunes from this episode are on repeat in our studio right now. Ty, Nolly, Richard and Rick, and Tani, a sincere thank you. And Ty... Do you think you can bring Booker T with you the next time you come through? Please. I know there will be. So serenity. So serenity. I know there will be. So serenity. Am I supposed to hear you? No, 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 you can't. Okay, no, so you just stop talking into the mic. <laughs> like, he, I know it was good. Like I was like, I can't hear him. I can't hear him. These things aren't working. Song Divers is a production of Ebor City Records and recorded in the historic Kenwood district of Saint Petersburg, Florida.